Well, if you will, please turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. Again, this is found on page 820 of your pew Bible. The chapter begins with the opinion of Herod Antipas, the governing authority over Galilee. And he states of Jesus in verse 2, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And the rest of this chapter reveals some of the miracles that Jesus was doing that drew Herod's attention. The problem with Herod was that his judgment concerning Jesus was just too limited. He associates the Lord with John the Baptist, despite that John had not been known to do miracles. If Herod had been capable of seeing the big picture, he would have realized that Jesus was much greater than John the Baptist. He was, in very self, God. Already we saw last week how Jesus stunningly fed over 5,000 people by multiplying five loaves of bread and two fish. Remember, only the men were counted within that story. Most likely, the number would have been closer to 10,000 if the women and children had been counted. And perhaps I should draw out that it's no less miraculous that not only was every mouth fed, but each of the 12 disciples were left with a basket of food. 12 exactly, not 10, not 13, not 11 and a half, but 12. No doubt the disciples would have been blown away by witnessing such an event as each stood there with a full basket. And now we come to Jesus' second miracle of the chapter. And though less public, it's no less stunning. The narrative begins with Jesus doing what he wanted to do in the very first place here. He wanted time alone to pray. We learn in verse 13 that Jesus had heard the news of John the Baptist's death, and he retreats by boat to a desolate place to take a moment to himself to commune with his father. And the crowds followed him along the shoreline, and they're waiting for him as he steps ashore. And despite his desire for solitude, his compassionate heart moves him to teach and to heal those who are gathered. And we're told it's already close to evening time in verse 15. So after Jesus fed this massive crowd, he sent them home. The sick had been healed, their bellies were full, it was time to go home. And just prior to dismissing the crowds, he sends the twelve on ahead by boat to cross the Sea of Galilee. Now this might seem unusual to us, that Jesus would part from his disciples, but it was not an unusual practice for them to do so. Jesus frequently desired time alone to pray, and his men were used to being sent out on errands while the Lord was by himself. An example is found in Matthew 10, verse 5, when Jesus sent out the 12 on their first mission, and according to chapter 11, verse 1, the Lord was left a minister on his own. Another example is found in John chapter 4, when the disciples were presumably off to find food, and Jesus is left alone to have a conversation with a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. We'll see it again when Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane in chapter 26. So Jesus sending his companions away was not an uncommon occurrence. Our Lord takes this time to ascend the mountains to pray while the disciples are in a boat crossing the sea by night. And that also was not an unusual situation for, for fishermen who would have been familiar with navigating the waters on a nightly catch. So far, so good. At this point in the narrative, there is nothing remarkable about this event until sometime between 3 and 6 o'clock in the morning, which by Roman time would have been considered the fourth watch of the night. And we're also told that by this time, 
they were a long way from shore. The Greek literally states many stadia, which was a Roman measurement. One stadia was 607 feet or over 200 yards. And using the term many stadia, we should at least assume a distance over 400 to 600 yards away from the shore. So from the text, we can conclude here that it's dark, and most likely these guys are groggy from a towering day. They may be nearing the halfway point of the Sea of Galilee, and a wind has now come against them with the waves that are sloshing against the boat. Perfect timing for something spooky to happen. And it does. We're not told that it was a cloudy night or pitch black, just that there was a wind against them. So presumably there's enough moonlight for the disciple to see what happens next. They see a figure approaching the boat. And the figure is walking on water. Now in my mind's eye, I kind of see it happening something like this. (sighs) (laughs) Sorry, I can't help myself, but it seems like it would happen like that. They are terrified. They think they are seeing a spirit, in Greek, literally, phantasm. And Jesus calls out to them to assure them and to calm them. He shouts, take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. He says, don't be afraid because they are, and I don't blame them. Now, perhaps in our day of special effects and digital imagery and movies, this doesn't seem like a big deal. But if you were there on that lake in the middle of the night and Jesus is coming toward you, walking on the water, what would be going through your mind? Now, Perhaps they should have known a little better. After all, this isn't the first freaky thing to happen to them while they were in a boat with Jesus. Remember, back in chapter 8, verses 23 through 27, they were in a storm on this very lake, and Jesus is asleep. They are frightened, and Jesus wakes up, and he says, be calm, and the storm subsides. At that time, the disciples ask, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? But now he is walking on water on a windy night. For certain, the Lord Jesus has taken this up a step in front of them. Now, they weren't expecting this from Jesus because Jesus is doing what only God can do. Job 9, verse 8 says, It is God who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Speaking of Yahweh, Asaph writes in Psalm 77, verse 19, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Psalm 93, 4 states, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the ways of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. And the prophet Habakkuk proclaimed in Habakkuk 3, 15, you trampled the sea with your horses, your surging mighty waters. The Old Testament taught God alone could walk on the waters. And he is. He is walking on the water. Perhaps that's why our Lord doesn't use his given name in verse 27. He doesn't say, it's me, Jesus, though that would have been equally appropriate. He says, it is I. In Greek, ego, I, me, or translated literally, I am. It is the great I am who is walking on the waters. 
And next, we see the disciple Peter make a bold proposition. This is the first of three episodes where Peter features prominently within this narrative section, the others being his confession of the Christ in chapter 16 and the transfiguration in chapter 17. Matthew is the only gospel writer to tell us about this next part of the story. It's almost like he was an eyewitness or something. But Peter asked the Lord to command him to come out on the water. That's pretty brash. As we mentioned, Peter is asking to do something that only God was known to do. But perhaps it's not too unusual when we go back to chapter 10, verse 1, where Jesus had been training the disciples to do miracles. Peter desires to imitate his master. So we can at least give him credit for that. And what is amazing is that that Peter actually steps out of the boat and he is able to walk on the water. For a time. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to why Peter begins to sink. Some say it was the condition. Some say it's because he took his eyes off of Jesus to look at the waves. I think it's safe to assume the primary reason is mentioned here in verse 30. Peter was afraid. He was afraid of the situation. He feared the circumstances more than he feared the Lord. He greatly underestimated Jesus. But this is important. He knew who to turn to when he was afraid. He cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus stretched out his hand and he rescues Peter. He tells him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, we might wonder what that's all about because after all, Peter was the only one with fate to actually step out of the boat. But Mark's account gives us some insight into this. He concludes the same story of Jesus walking on the water with the words, Mark chapter 6, verse 52, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Remember back on the shore with the 5,000 plus, Jesus said, you give them something to eat. They didn't believe it could be done. They came up with excuses why it could not be done. And yet, at the end... Each one of them is holding a basket full of food. And if you didn't pick up on it, twice in this account, fear is mentioned in the disciples. When Jesus first approached the boat and when Peter steps out of the boat, they should have known they were under the protection of their Lord. Nothing would happen to them that was outside of his control. He would provide all that they need. After all, he is God. It is not that in that moment Peter didn't have faith. It's that he had little faith. In fact, if we go back to the last time they were in a boat and the storm overcame them, back in Matthew chapter 8, verse 26, Jesus asked the whole of the disciples, why are you afraid, O you plural of little faith? The problem is their faith was too small. Hardened hearts hardened hearts unsensitive to faith had gotten in their way. It's well to note that that Peter becomes a literal example of the promises found in the Psalms. Peter was not expected to walk on the water by himself. He was to do so by faith in Christ. As verse 28 tells us, at his command, at the Lord Jesus' command. And when he sank, he did what every single one of us should do cry out to the Lord for deliverance. 
Listen to a few of these psalms. Psalm 18, verse 16. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. Psalm 69, 1 through 3. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Psalm 94, 18. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. Psalm 144, 7, stretch out your hand from on high, rescue me and deliver me from the many waters. Peter becomes the embodiment of those promises, an example of the Lord's faithfulness to us all. This picture in verse 31 through 32 in my mind is just so vivid. Peter is a fisherman by trade. And hauling those full nets into the boat probably made him a a brawny kind of guy. He was most likely a big fellow. And Jesus reached out his hand and he took hold of him. And when Peter was at his most desperate, the Son of God held Peter close to him. Oh, to be held by Jesus. And then the Lord Jesus assisted Peter to the boat. And there is something transformative in this moment in all of the disciples, not just Peter. If you remember the last time they were crossing the sea and Jesus calmed the storm, the disciples' reaction was, what sort of man is this? Now, in chapter 14, verses 32 and 33, the wind ceased. Once again, the waters are calm now. The moment to exercise great faith in Jesus, the the crisis is now over. And a moment of revelation occurs to the disciples. These Jewish men did something extraordinary. They worshiped another human being. If Jesus was not God, then they just violated the first and second commandment. But they worshiped Jesus, and they pronounced that before them was the Son of God. This is the first time that they had used this title. It harks back to Jesus' baptism when the Father declared from the heavens in Matthew chapter 17, verse, or chapter 3, verse 17, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Satan used this title as a temptation to Jesus in chapter 4 to entice Jesus to reveal himself before his time. He said, if you are the Son of God, then turn these stones into bread. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself off the temple. But here is the first use of the title by the disciples. There'll be another chapter before they understand some of the ramifications of it when Peter, the man who was sinking, would declare, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now what's interesting about this title is the need for faith while invoking it. Others will use it in this gospel, but not mean its full scope of salvation. The demons in Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, will call Jesus the Son of God without any saving benefit. We must assume that Judas, the betrayer, is in the boat at that time. He witnessed his event and pronounced him Son of God alongside of his companions. But yet he still rejects the Christ. In chapter 26, verse 63, Caiaphas, the high priest, knew of Jesus' claim to be the Son of God. 
And in chapter 27, perhaps once again a temptation of Satan, the priest at the crucifixion will taunt him, if you are the Son of God, then come down off of the cross. Not recognizing that it is because he is God that he must stay on that cross. And just a few verses later, from that taunt, even a a Roman centurion, a Gentile, recognizes that Jesus is the Son of God. It's one thing to acknowledge Jesus' position, but another to have faith that he can save you. So now it's time for a spiritual checkup for your own soul. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you truly believe that he is the Savior, your personal Savior? That's the question I asked each one of these baptismal candidates. Do you believe that he is worthy of all of your worship? So I would ask, how does your life demonstrate that Jesus is literally God to you? Is Jesus just a convenience to attend Sunday morning worship to assuage your conscience? As in, well, I'm doing this for you, Lord. Now you owe me something in return. Does he matter in your everyday life? In what ways does your life reveal that he matters, that he is your God? Have have you done as these young people just did? stepped out by faith to be baptized so that you might be identified with him? Do your colleagues and friends know how you feel about Jesus? Does the way you spend your money or what you teach your children or how you teach or treat your classmates at school show how you really feel about Jesus, that he truly is God to you? When it comes to your bad health, do you trust in Jesus that he has you or is your fear of the unknown consequences what overwhelms you in that moment. It's one thing to say, like it's a fact, Jesus is the Son of God, and another to really believe it by faith. When I was a young man, I had the privilege to go to the old World Trade Center when it still existed. I was told at the beginning of our tour of New York that when we got there, there would be an elevator that would whisk us up 110 floors in a matter of seconds to the observation deck and that it was completely safe. I remember that moment. I stepped off the tour bus in front of one of the Twin Towers and then stretching my head back and I could not see the top of the tower in that moment. Now, Lisa can tell you, I don't like enclosed spaces. And I'm not a fan of heights either. So I entered the lobby where there was a line of people to ride one of the said quick elevators. And I observed one go up with a load of people and then another descend and open up and a crowd of people exited excitedly from coming down the tower. I watched this happen several times as I waited to get on one of the elevators. I could have told you without a doubt that the elevators at the World Trade Center would take a person to the top and bring them back down. But until I got on that elevator, I did not actually have faith that it would take me up and bring me back down. I I could tell you that I believe my truck will get me home. But until I actually get in it and make use of it, I have not demonstrated my faith in my vehicle. And sadly, 
I'm afraid many cultural Christians do the same. They, they have an understanding that Jesus saves. They've witnessed it in others, and they've conformed certain areas of their lives to appear Christian, provided it makes no demands upon them, but they've never personally placed their faith in Jesus. Live as though only Jesus is their Savior and their Lord. Otherwise, their lives would operate differently than just keeping up appearances. But perhaps you might be in a position like Peter where you have faith, but your faith is small in the moment. Your fears are great. And remember, Mark's gospel told us why, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Hardened hearts will cause us to fear and assume the worst. A little later in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus will say, Moses permitted divorce due to hardened hearts. It was the belief that God could not help you overcome the unfaithfulness of a spouse. It's easy to let our hardened hearts and fears make us think the situation cannot change. The problem cannot be resolved. The risk is just too high. But never forget... Who sent the disciples across the sea out in the dark in the first place? It was Jesus. If Jesus had not appeared, most likely this would have been an unremarkable night. No comment would have been made upon it at all. But it was Jesus that created the circumstance to exercise and grow their faith. It was Jesus who supernaturally appeared on the scene that startled them. And it was Jesus that rescued Peter, even though his faith was weak. What mattered in that moment was not that Peter's faith was small, but that Jesus was faithful, which is why Mark and Luke don't focus on Peter, but exclusively on the Lord Jesus. I'm coming to realize over and over again that the Lord continues to place me in situations of fear. Situations where I have no control whatsoever so that I might exercise my faith in him. I, I become like that father of the sick daughter in Mark chapter 9 crying, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I should be growing from each of these episodes in my life. And some days I, I feel as though I do, I, that, like I make progress. And when Lisa or one of my daughters feel fretful, I can say, honey, Look at how God has provided for us in the past. And he has us now. So let's keep showing our faith by being obedient to him and patiently wait for him. And then there are those other days. I can't sleep. I am anxious. I replay multiple scenarios in my mind, hoping I can find the right action that will get me what I want. I had one of those moments just this past week. I was having trouble sleeping over a broken relationship, and I was questioning everything because what I was doing was not changing the other person's mind. And I was having this crisis over my calling in ministry, but as I laid in bed, the Holy Spirit brought to mind, Blair, was I not God before you became pastor? Blair, was I not God before I saved you? Blair, was I not God before you were born? Blair, you are not God. 
I am God. Therefore, trust in me. And in those moments, I still allow my fears to get the best of me. I do not fear God more than my greatest fears on earth. But Peter's little jaunt on the lake is a picture of my little faith. My faith is present. I'm certain of it. I, I am out of the boat, so to speak. <laughs> and then the panic sets in. And despite my fear, despite my little faith, Jesus still has me. He is God in every moment. And I am not. He is God in every moment. Jesus was in control of the situation from start to finish in this narrative, and he will still be in control of the start of my life to the very end of it. And perhaps when my life on this earth comes to its conclusion, I'll still have fears about what awaits as I take my final breath. My faith may be small in that moment, but my faith is not in my abilities to control the situation. My faith is in the one who holds me, the one who placed himself on a cross to make full atonement for my sin, the one who did what I could never do, come before the holy God to receive the punishment for my rebellion against him, who, who rose from the dead and covers me with the righteousness of his perfect life. That was out of my control too. So I might say, I might say, I will keep trusting in the one who holds me even when my faith is weak. I might say it that way. But the reality is, he has already held me so tight that he is the one that keeps me trusting. He's already holding me and has held me from the get-go. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that this would be a moment that you would increase our faith, that you would help us obey you. Lord, our, our, our first desire is for that person, Lord, who your Holy Spirit has been working on and you have been drawing them to yourself. That, Lord, this is a moment for them to exercise faith and to come and find the salvation that can only be found in Jesus Christ. They keep trying to live their lives as though they should be perfect and they keep failing and they keep wondering why. Lord, show them that it is futile to live a perfect life on their own, that what you're calling them to is to repent and turn to you and trust in the righteousness of your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that, that you would help them to exercise faith, to grant them faith in this moment, to be obedient and to pursue you, to seek you for salvation. And then, Lord, we pray for those moments when we have little faith. We know, Lord, that, that you hold us. We've seen already what you've done for us in the past. And yet, Lord, our fears sometimes get the better of us. We thank you, Lord, that even despite that, you still allow us to call out to you, Lord, save me and you will hold us fast in that moment so Lord whatever fears my brothers and sisters are facing right now 
I pray that they would elicit that prayer once again. Lord, deliver me. And that they would hear, that you would hear that righteous call, Lord, and that you would act, that you would intervene and show them that you are holding them in the midst of the storm and leading them to safety. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.